This is the ZMAR Podcast. Elite Benefits of America helps small and mid-sized companies with their health insurance programs. And now, your host, Butch ZMAR. Renewal season is upon us, and uh, what that means is the benefits renewals are becoming into employers' hands, CFOs, HRs that are listening to this podcast. Uh, right now, uh, tis the season. Middle markets are already headstrong, already into the renewals for January 1. Um, a lot of employers still renew October, November, December. If you're not engaged right now, you certainly should. But, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, cost analysis and having data today. And speaking of that, I got the season, I'm going to have four kids playing hockey. And so there's obviously a lot to go through. And uh, we already got the tournament schedule. So speaking of data, I've already gone through and done rough estimate and math of figuring out how much this is going to cost, right? All the travel, uh, hotel expenses, the food. Um, but it's data, right? Supporting data. Maybe we have to change some logistics sometimes. I, I don't I don't think it's going to happen, but, you know, there might be a chance we have to say no to some things, right? Just it's too much all at once, but just saying we have to weigh out the pros and cons, but we have data, right? So going into medical renewals, you have to have data, right? Otherwise, you can't really make any decisions, right? You just get these blind increases and these cost of services uh, going up in the area, uh, and most uh, employer plans that are between a 30 employees and 250 employees, they're fully insured right now. And so they get this blinded renewal increase with no data, um, even though there's laws that actually require it um, coming up um, that you should supposed to have access to data and that's still yet to change. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But there's no data on it. So you're so your broker goes back to the carrier and says, come on, they're good clients of mine, you know, see what we could do. And this is every year. Like no one's picking up the the fact that this is a routine. They're just looking at it and say, well, he's earning his commissions. We got our rates down from the initial renewal. Well, what do you think the insurance company did? They, they gave you a renewal knowing that a broker may come back. And if they don't, they get the higher increase. If they do, they know what their floor is going to be. And so... The broker goes back and negotiates and might shave off three to five points and you feel good about the renewal because we did what we can and maybe he shopped the market and maybe you're switching carriers this year you switch insurance companies for a few years and then you head back and this is just a common routine i feel like it's the uh the hamster wheel where you just keep going round and round and that's just the way these middle market, um, small middle market carry, uh, companies just handle it, just the way the brokers. The unfortunate part, um, and I've said this before, where insurance agents have um, basically taught employers how to purchase their health plans. For a long, long time, I call it the heyday of the benefits industry, that brokers made a ton of money, uh, did very little work. There was financial incentive for bonuses. The bonuses are still there. And we'll talk about that. Uh, we're we're going to talk about broker compensation. Um, and then things were golden. So basically it's like um, they wanted the blind increases. They didn't want them to know how much they were making. They didn't want them to know what the data was or what kind of claim experience, because that, you know, that might hurt their relationship. And then uh, move, might lose a client to a competitor that's willing to disclose all that. And then they would make all these excuses for it, especially the big shops, uh, the nationwide or even regional companies. They they certainly was doing this. Smaller guys were so vulnerable anyways, um, being small, um, that uh, uh, sometimes it, it, it's our catch-all to try to win business. But 
as even insurance agencies grow, I was much smaller before, and now it's easier to just talk about some of this stuff and then move to a bigger, larger clients that need need the support and resources. So there's there's a uh, a law out there called the the new um, Consolidated Appropriations Act or CAA. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. There's commission disclosures, which we'll talk about uh, momentarily. But claims, uh, claims data is supposed to be available by your carrier. I, I think there's a date coming up. Um, I didn't look at specifically um, December 1st rings a bell, but I'm not 100%. So, but the issue is uh, trying to get that data. I don't think fully insured groups are, are going to be willing to actually give up this data. And there's lawsuits being filed for that. One of the biggest ones, just the name drop a little bit, is there's Kraft's Heinz Foods. Uh, they sued, uh, they're suing Aetna because the contract that it, they signed apparently allows the broker access to the data, but the, uh, but the actual company paying the premiums are, are not allowed to have access to the data. So the broker could use it for shopping and leverage whatever they need, but they cannot share this information with the client. And now there's a lawsuit against it. There's a big union out there that's filed a similar lawsuit, and there's more to come. And I think it's just going to be a big, huge wave on this because uh, this is opening up the doors for a lot of things out there, and employers need to be responsible. And so by being responsible, you have to hold other people accountable. You do it internally, why don't you do it externally? You do it for other expense items on the P&L. So let's talk a little bit about broker disclosures. Um, anything over a thousand hours that we're getting compensated by an insurance company that's already built into the premium, we're supposed to put out a disclosure and it's supposed to be available upon request. Um, and I know some brokers haven't done this. Some of them have given it one time and nothing really has changed. So I would reach out to your current broker and ask them for um, a commission disclosure form. Um, it was supposed to be given, but given the benefit of the doubt, um, it's supposed to be available on, upon request. So go ahead and request that information. You got to know what you're paying, right? You do it for any other uh, professional that you work with. And the reality is, is, you know, they, that whole cliche is, you know, good advice is never free. Um, you have to pay for it in some capacity. Uh, sure, it's built into the premiums, but technically it's not coming out of your pocket. And you could actually go get third-party opinions that are not insurance agents uh, to consult with this. I met several business consultants, have consulted on benefits as well as commercial insurance or even workers' comp, but they're not insurance agents, right? They're just consultants and they got paid for the time. And so I think uh, we're going to be moving down that path in, in some ways, uh, but we have to get the commission disclosures out of the way just because at some point you might be able to carve those out and just charge that fee and i think that um, is a trend that's going to be occurring it's always really been there in a large large group space they usually have retainers and all kinds of stuff but the, they're dealing with companies that could actually pay for that but you know there's there's good that comes out of this right you know what you're paying um there's some cases that you're actually overpaying for what the broker is actually providing work for in current times we don't provide any work agreement uh, with the employer but um, I think that's going to be subject to change, but um, and, but in many cases we're actually underpaid, uh, and, and then we're starting to charge fees. We're we're doing that at our agency. We have to draw a line in the sand, um, and uh, it has to be obviously justifiable. But uh, most most of the cases that we've dealt with, no one's ever complained because they realize it's outside the scope. Um, otherwise, we're losing money, right? Either you're going to have to do it on your own or shell out the money and pay for it. So at some point, you're going to have to make a decision on that because we can't keep operating and, and losing money. And there's we have a handful of accounts that we just keep losing money on 
um, and we're we're slowly working them to the the move in the right direction. But that it happens in all agencies. So if you're listening to this and you're dealing with a, a broker, this is some information you're going to need to know. But in other cases, once you realize how much um, a fee schedule is being charged, we've seen counts that we've taken over where the broker is charging $100 per month per employee that's enrolled in the plan when the average could be 50, right? So you're, they're going to pay double. And in some ways, I'm not saying that it's not worth $100, but there has to be some element of disclosure. You have to be aware of it and what you're getting for it. Um, I think $100 is probably definitely a reasonable compensation per employee uh, per month, um, but it's not realistic compared to the market. And so if the workload or the scope of work that you're trying to do um, adds up to be that it should be $100 versus 50, then fine. But um, take a look at that. A lot of the fully insured plans, they probably char, uh, pay the broker between $25 and $35 per month um, per head that's in, enrolled. It doesn't matter spouse or family in a lot of cases, but uh, and even that's too low. Uh, inflation's hit hard. Uh, we're still providing resources. It's a tool to try to make sure that you're you're definitely being paid uh, or charging or paying a certain amount versus um, what was for previously expected. And so, if you could save some money there, that that's obviously good things, but not the chip uh, cheap on the broker that's providing the resources and advice. And then at some point, when do you make enough money, right? There's some accounts out there that you have a broker and they're making six figures per month on your account. Uh, and I'm not saying that they're not worth six figures per month, um, but there's definitely some trade-offs when you're paying that kind of revenue share or compensation retainer, so to speak. Uh, at some point, there's there's probably too much and they're just grossly overpaid for what they're actually providing. So um, but then in addition to that, there's definitely bonuses that are in place. Uh, most of the national players usually take advantage of these, uh, but they're really doing a good good job right now trying to hide all that because of the commission disclosures. They're even zeroing out the medical, and then they're doing other things to get compensated the same amount. So there's definitely some tricky business. It seems like there's a lot of work to go involved in that. And I don't know why they would actually put that kind of time to hide the commissions versus just disclose it. Sure, they might take a haircut, but you take a haircut and you move forward. And then um, I think transparency is key and you'll probably gain more business by being honest. Employers just need more data. Uh, you're in the health insurance business, whether you know it or not. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Um, even Warren Buffett has said this years ago uh, that when once you get to a certain point, you have to focus the attention on it. It's like a separate side business that you just have to manage. You can't pawn it off anymore. Um, you haven't been able to do that in years, but uh, it's definitely a challenge um, to do so. But you have to control the cost, right? CFOs out there, uh, I'm telling you, you're not doing your job when it comes to healthcare. Uh, you, you're, it's your job to control um, the outputs, right? So the uh, control the cost to produce a profit and increase the profit uh, while still trying to keep things um, good in the company, such as providing the right amount of benefits to the employees so they they stay longer, you attract uh, good talent. And then the health insurance renewals, you should be at the business table or the, the conference room when you, these things are going on. A lot of excuses I've heard from CFOs is that uh, well, it's a healthcare thing, and I don't. We don't understand it to begin with, so HR should handle it. But you're delegating this budget to somebody else that has actually no financial incentive to actually control costs in the company. Um, they feel like it's easier to keep their job by not rocking the boat 
and bringing changes to the table that actually might benefit the whole company uh, as a whole versus an individual. Um, and I'm telling you, if you're an employer listening to this and you have a CFO that hasn't brought this to attention, you should just fire them um, because they're not doing their job. Uh, they may be good in other areas, but they're skipping this. Um, health insurance has become the one of the most, if not the most expensive line item on the P&L. And so if you're not addressing this, you certainly should, um, because there's a lot of advantages to this. Not only just increasing profits, you can increase um, the cash flow to you know, get more productive employees, buy new equipment. Uh, we've even had situations where they had to increase the equity or the profits of the company so they could sell it and so they could gain more out of the business. And so versus selling it as is, taking less, and then the new company is going to do exactly what we're talking about, uh, especially when they're controlling the cost. And they, they reap the rewards of the profit at that point instead of you. You need to start demanding the data. Any employer that is somewhere between 30 employees and 250 employees, uh, it's criminal just not to have access to this data, let alone not even ask for it. Um, that's why I say CFOs should be fired. HR should step in too and get that claims report. Take a little responsibility. In fact, uh, you know, I'm not here to negotiate anybody's contract, but you might be able, HR might be able to negotiate some financial reward for saving money in a reasonable way. And, and that might be your financial incentive to, to actually move things in the right direction. Because at some point, you know, sure, money is important, right? But if you can't afford it, um, what does that mean? It means that you're either out of, um, the company's going out of business or employees are being laid off. And there's an expense to that and reputation um, as well. If you took it with any other supplier and you don't see cost, how are you going to be able to control it? Uh, it's almost like uh, if you have a vendor that supplies products for your manufacturer or um, supplier for software, whatever it might be, and if you don't see a cost analysis that's going into it, like your administration fees, as well as the breakdown of all these other costs, you can't do anything, right? Uh, you just eat it. Um, and when's the last time a CFO has received invoices or uh, throughout the year from um office supplies or uh, if it's related to building something in the warehouse um, when's the last time that they didn't look at things that if they could buy it cheaper somewhere else for same cost or, or i'm sorry same product same quality same outcomes uh, but you, you they're saving money by moving vendors they're not doing it with healthcare. in a lot of cases with the health insurance the admin fees or the profits for the insurance company could be as much as three times as the rest of the market and you wouldn't know that without actually seeing these devotion uh, these fees sure broker compensations in there but that's why you need to know that too so you could justify how much the insurance company is getting to minister the plan as well as the broker compensation or anybody else that's getting paid for that um, such as the pharmacy benefit manager the stop loss carrier, any extra benefits that you're adding in there to help control costs or provide value to the employee, those need to be all broken out. And it's unfortunate that in a lot of cases, the people that are listening to this podcast, they're, they're, they're just not doing that. Listen up. Butch wants to give you your own elite benefits playbook, and it's absolutely free. From business strategy to benefits strategy. Every step from the start through implementation, account setup, and open enrollment. Working through service requests and the process of renewals. A valuable look at your company, your insurance options, and how to make the process easier on you. Go now to EliteBenefits.net slash playbook and get your free Elite Benefits playbook. Or give Butch a call today, 708-535-3006. Uh, we have... 
clients that actually don't use enough of their health insurance. And here's an example, right? So they, they have a level funded plan, which is on a self-funded plan chassis. They predict the anticipated claims. So um, I'm, I'm going to summarize this. A fully self-insured plan is basically behind the closed curtain, the Wizard of Oz, uh, that it's basically overall plan deductible for the entire company, and then you have insurance. So you're self-insuring until you meet that deductible. Large companies have larger deductibles. These small companies don't. With Level Funded, it was created because they don't trust smaller employers to pay uh, claims on a, on a regular basis. Sure, they're going to hire a TPA for this, but they're going to invoices for this. And claims could be high one month, low mo- another month, right? It just fluctuates too much. So what they do is they take that whatever the deductible is built into the they call a stop loss carrier, which is really the catastrophic insurance that you're buying for the whole company. And they put a deductible on it, but you pay that deductible. So for my example, let's just say the overall plan deductible is 15000 The employees don't see this at all. Uh, they just present their card. They pay your copay, whatever their individual deductible is. Behind closed doors, the plan overall has a um, deductible. On level funded, they prepay that. So we've had account... Even just in um, last year, um, they haven't received anything yet this year um, because of the runout period. But uh, out of fifteen thousand, they prepaid for that deductible. They got a twelve thousand dollar refund. And so, but how would you know that if you didn't get access to the data? Sure, will there be years that they use all the fifteen thousand hours that are prepaid, and then insurance kicks in? Absolutely. In fact, most years probably will be that way. But if you didn't have the data, how would you know? And we have one group that gets the full amount back uh, minus some administrative fees that uh, may have been in there, or, you know, that could have been for claims, but very s- small amount. Uh, but almost f- all $15,000 was refunded to them because they didn't use it. And so, but at least you know that your group's healthy. Sure, there probably will be still be an increase, but you just got $15,000 back. Um, it's not a rebate. You prepaid it. It's your money. They were just reallocating it. Uh, you can also negotiate, put it back in the pre- renewal premiums. There's a whole bunch of stuff you could do with it. Uh, so I'm just saying that these are extremely rare. Uh, it's not going to be in your case, uh, um, is my, my guess. People are making claims, especially the larger the company. You don't have control of all these employees doing their thing, and they're going to make claims, and you're probably going to use up the deductible. But I'm just saying if you didn't have the data, how would you know? If you had claims that racked up into millions of dollars worth of claims and they came back and said hey here's a 15 percent increase on the renewal well you could still try to negotiate that but i'm just saying it's more justifiable when you see the expense report that you just shelled out uh, for the entire company 15 million dollars worth of claims and so why like it just makes it more comforting if you get a renewal with a 15 percent increase 15 percent increase what if you're one of the companies that didn't even use their health insurance as much. So you you would have been eligible for, let's say, the I'm just using hypothetical, that it's $12,000 back, but you still had a 15% increase. You wouldn't know that on a fully insured. And without the data, you wouldn't know that. So therefore, you just sucker punch the 15%. Maybe the broker goes back and negotiates it down to 12. Um, you feel good because you just got three points knocked off. Uh, but was it really good when you didn't have the data? What if you're the most profitable entity in the entire company? It's your data. Um, demand it, ask for it, switch to a company that's going to provide it to you. Uh, loyalty only operates in one way. The board of directors may be super comfortable with the big companies um, that do billboards. In our industry, we're calling them bukas. There, There's only like, what, five carriers that capture 80% of the marketplace or market share only by name. 
And so people feel more warm and fuzzy inside about it. But the loyalty is only one way. They're only looking at you for a profit standpoint. They don't really care about you. Uh, you care more about them than you do uh, than the other way around. It helps you make uh, more informed decisions. Uh, you could definitely see line items such as compensation. Get your data. I'm telling you, the claims data alone will be eye-opening to you on what is even available and how you can control it. You may not be able to control everything, but you could certainly implement programs uh, such as uh, primary or direct primary care facility we pay a stipend to a facility per employee and the employee gets to go there for free at no additional cost and uh, the claim is not being processed through your insurance company therefore you have less transactions less payouts and it's worked out extremely well for a lot of client um, these employer clients because the employee can go as much as they want or need to they don't pay anything when they show up it's just they're getting the doctor's office uh, or facility gets a stipend for each employee. So whether you go or you don't go, so they're in a win anyways. And so it's just a um, really good incentive. And then we've talked about on other podcasts where in the healthcare world, it is the opposite of the rest where the higher the cost normally, you get higher quality. In the healthcare world, uh, they have data that actually shows that the higher the cost, the less the quality of outcomes. And so Part of these packages that you're able to put together, depending on the size of the group, premium amounts and nature of the group and where they're located, you might be able to negotiate certain contracts that if the employee goes to these higher rated facilities that our quality of care um, ratings are much higher than the convenience or the big branded name downtown uh, somewhere in the country that, you know, especially attached to a teaching hospital, but you could go to these facilities, the employees could go, and then there's no cost to the employees by going there. So you're giving them a financial incentive to go to a higher quality facility, and then they don't pay anything out of pocket. Otherwise, they can go anywhere they want in the country. But you're providing a financial incentive to lower your cost on the, on the plan. At the same time, give them high quality of care. You're not sending them to a lower quality care because you're paying less. It doesn't work like that in the healthcare world. So, but how would you know that without looking at the data, right? You need data. I'm not saying you have to be an expert at this, but CFOs are making decisions on numbers. Well, get the numbers on your healthcare plan. So a big part of the ACA uh, was uh, insurance agents. Uh, there was at one point when they were trying to negotiate the Affordable Care Act and put it in place there in Obama's administration that we were actually excluded from providing assistance and getting compensated for it. And I don't know if that would have been good or bad if we got pushed out. It might have been a good thing. It just taken some while to get it readjusted. But but here we are, and uh, they included us. But then they changed how we got compensated because, you know, we're the evil villains of the industry that have all this advice, but uh, we can't get compensated because we're financially incentivized by the insurance company which has some problems. And I think that employers need to start paying for their broker instead of worrying about inside the health insurance premiums. But that was a problem, right? So all of a sudden we get this flat rate. In a lot of cases, it hasn't really increased that much since 2014 when this whole thing rolled out. One of the major carriers in the Midwest, uh, they uh, have not increased their commissions to us since 2016. It technically was 2014, but they gave us a $2 bump uh, in 2016, which was very minimum, and they haven't increased it since. Um, personally, I think it's hogwash, and it's not enough. Uh, and what they're compensating in the fixed rate models and the ACA plans isn't enough anyways. But And then here they haven't increased it in a while. Uh, some of the other insurance companies have increased the, what they compensate us, but you definitely need to know how much it's being compensated because you're probably going to start receiving invoices 
for the difference and, and because they have to stay in business you want the advice um, free advice only goes so far and people are, are not working for a charity they're uh, at least working for personal profit um, which means equity just like you are in your own company equity and then also uh, financial means to live but you know one thing in the affordable care act they took care of was besides our health insurance what they didn't do actually is what um take care of how doctors are paid, right? They left that open um, probably because of the lobbyists. They have more money than us insurance agents really do, but uh, they weren't uh, touched by this Affordable Care Act. One of the biggest problems with the Affordable Care Act is they never address costs. They only address the funding mechanism. And so therefore you're, you're really overplaying for claims and it was never addressed. Uh, and so that becomes a problem. So all these doctors are actually getting paid a whole lot more today than before the Affordable Care Act. And sure, they got to be compensated, but their percentage-wise, it's drastically increased. And how do we know that? Is because the medical loss ratio of the Affordable Care Act. Medical loss ratio told insurance companies how much they could actually make based on a percentage. Well, in order to increase their amount based on revenue, they, um, since it's based on a percentage, they increase the revenue to increase their profits, right? But in order to increase the revenue, they have to justify the expenses because they had to be escrowed or allotted for claims. And if they didn't, they had to refund it back to the policyholders. Well, guess what? The doctors said, well, we'll just start charging more. And it was a win-win for them. Uh, doctors are making more and insurance companies are making more. But somehow the insurance agents, the ones with the advice, got the commission cuts. So let's just talk a little bit about what insurance agents really get compensated for. The compensation today, especially with fixed rates built in a health plan, is really coming down to servicing the account. Uh, it actually doesn't really cover consulting work related to the plan. We don't, most brokers are not charging for it, but I, and here's my devil's advocate on this. And so um, if you don't believe me, there's a lot of employers possibly listening to this um, podcast that they get their health insurance administered and Put through through a payroll company someone could be peos or professional employer organizations and that's a different model but i'm talking about their uh, their payroll company is the broker of record when that happens they do service the account and they do okay i don't think they're fantastic but they're a payroll company trying to provide value to their clients and um, i don't shame them for doing that but what you do lose and that is getting advice try calling them and getting advice T ask them the shop markets and find out, you know, what's the best option for you? Should I go self-fund it now or should I stay where I'm at? Oh, yeah, should I go level fund it? What are those? What about captives, right? Like, I need to be informed and I need my data. Uh, that's when they're going to get lost. They have no idea anything you just said or even listened to just now. But, um, but mainly, if you're under 100 employees and you're with the payroll company, chances are you're not getting that kind of level of service. So, but they're collecting the commissions on the contract. So, but if you come to me or any other broker in the marketplace, somehow under traditional models is that we get paid the same exact amount that the payroll company gets, but somehow you get our advice. Um, and somehow our advice is worth the same as the servicing commissions that, because when you were at the payroll company, you didn't get that advice. And then just to keep going with this, if an employer ends up over a hundred employees, those payroll companies stop going after that broker business. Um, because, And the reason I know this is because they try to win payroll business for me on 100 plus. And I argue with them and say, okay, so let me give you my 100 plus clients because you guys don't go after that business. But at the same time, your buddy down the, off, down the office hallway, 
he's trying to steal my smaller group under 100 employees because they're trying to put it all under one house, but you don't give advice or a consultation for anything. And their argument is saying, well, other brokers are doing it too. So they're just copping out, trying to steal the business. But I'm just pointing out that from a consultant standpoint, you lose that revenue. And I think so the reality is, is when commissions are built into a contract based on a commission, what you're really getting is just service. You're not getting the actual consultation of it all. I think at some point, um, you know, if there's enough revenue in the account, the, some brokers will feel compensated enough that they don't need the charge. Uh, some of brokers are actually coming up with rating models so that makes it fair and transparent. Uh, but again, it's data, right? It goes back to data. How does an employer make a decision on what they're actually paying for? And here it is, we're talking about commissions and most of the brokers out there don't want to talk about it. And so I think um, it's something that you need to bring up at the renewal table um, coming up in the fourth quarter. But I, I still seriously think, and this is from the world of Budzimar, on Affordable Care Act plans or groups that are under 100 that are fully insured, you're going to start seeing some consultant fees come out of it for the renewal. Um, because when you break down the actual compensation package given by the contracts for the insurance company, which we have no negotiation or pool on in a lot, most cases, all of a sudden now, are we being compensated enough and are you getting the advice? It goes back to um, how valuable is advice when it's free? That's why attorneys charge a fee for advice as well as accountants. So some of them will actually do initial consultation free because they're vetting to make sure that it's a good client and they're providing some element of value and and that's okay. But a lot of them are even shifting to providing that value, but then they're charged for it. And then if you decide to hire them, they'll work out some other compensation package. Some will actually credit the money back. Uh, So there's different ways to do it. Advice, true advice isn't free. So a few things to go over for this renewal here is start early. Um, we're here, we're in August when we're recording it, um, probably published sometime because we're late August. We're, um, by the time this rolls out, it'll probably be September when you listen to this. Um, so start early, right? And most plans are renewing January 1st. You should be probably have a, starting to have a conversation in the month of September for January 1. If you're not, you're gonna be late in the game. Uh, it reduces the stress. Uh, I would, if you don't know where to start, let's start with a checklist. We, we have a renewal checklist that you can go to leapbenefits.net forward slash check checklist. Um, and it's just one time checklist, uh, elitebenefits.net check, uh, forward slash checklist. And so work through that checklist. There's a lot of things on there. there. It's probably way over the top, but it gives you timelines too: 90 days, 60 days, 30 days. And so, uh, for groups 30 to 250, um, I would recommend um, downloading a copy of the Elite Benefits uh, playbook, and you can go to elitebenefits.net forward slash playbook and download that right now. Um, It'll help you format a multi-year plan. Uh, It's not going to happen overnight, the control costs. Maybe your group isn't ready, either just from a conscience or or comfort zone um, standpoint, but it could also be that your group isn't ready based on claims and logistics and how to roll it out. So it's a multi-year strategy. So um, download that, read through it. That'll help out. Call our office. Um, We'll be glad to help uh, any way we can. I would also keep your broker in check. These are a lot of things that uh, I've been saying throughout this podcast, but keep your broker in check. Find out what they're actually going to be doing. Maybe even ask them for a scope of work. So if you're an employer account with less than 10 10 employees or under, 
and maybe almost 100% passive, you, there's not a whole lot of options for under 10 employees. And so some brokers may ghost these accounts. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. You should at least touch base. But I would recommend that if you're under 10 employees that you take the initiative as well and call your broker and, and start early. The proactive ones, I think the uh, broker is going to like. And so um, they're going to enjoy that relationship a little bit further because you're you're calling them and you're like, hey, how do we handle this for this renewal? But most times you're just going to be end up staying with the same carrier. You might switch and save a few bucks here and there, but you got uh, if you're not growing, that's pretty much going to be the game and you're probably going to stay with the same carrier. And so you may actually have to start paying them. Uh, we don't make a whole lot of, on under 10 groups, but if you want that advice and consultation, you may have to pay for it. Usually it's going to be reasonable. I know some brokers that are doing it. We don't do it all the time. It depends on the situation, but um, usually it's all up front and agreed upon before we execute any consultation with the fee. But some other ones are charging even $300 annually for um, consultation. Some are charging as much as $1,000. But you pay your CPA every year and you pay for legal um, advice. So it's the same thing. Just it, You just may have to look at it from that point of view and not look at it from free advice because they're receiving commissions because you may be at 10 employees you may have three enrolled and we may be making $500 for the whole entire year. And that includes any service work, any waivers, consultation throughout the year. And then you're expecting to get two or three hours from them at the renewal. They're losing money. And so just keep that in mind. If you're an employer account from 10 to 30 employees that are on the, on the account, um, this should be a little bit more active with the broker. They probably did an outreach or an email because at this point, between 10 and 30, you, you, there are definitely a lot more options. You could move the level fund it. You might be able to diversify that risk a little bit more. You might be able to save some good money, um, even as much as like $50,000 a year, if, assuming your company qualifies, depending on the plan profiles and cost containment strategies. With employee uh, employees 10 to 30, um, you should have your open enrollment at least 30 days out. Uh, from the renewal. So if your renewal is technically January 1st, the open enrollment should be ready to go the first week of December. In theory, uh, some will be the middle. You should never be doing an open enrollment the last week. Uh, this is just a train wreck for everybody because if you have employees with plan changes, that creates problems. At our agency, we try to start um, our 10 to 30 lives 45 days out. And, and sure, it's a little excessive, but most of the Groups between 10 and 30 are not really making that uh, big adjustments, at least in-house. If you're a new client, we probably will move carriers because it puts you in a better spot, but depending on the situation. But we try to do uh, 30 to 45 days out, at least try to get things moving. Um, that's a goal. It doesn't always work out that way, but um, we can get it done out of the way. It's less stress. If we need to buy a little more time, like sometimes employees go on vacation or they're out of town because of the week of Thanksgiving, for example, uh, and you need to extend it. Uh, a few days for them. Uh, usually we have that window. It's hard to extend when we're at Christmas trying to do for January 1st um, start date because insurance companies usually need the data by the 15th of December. Sure, you can go a little bit later, but that just screws everything up. Um, have higher standards for your company instead of winging it is my recommendation. If you're an employer that's 30 to 250 employees, 300 employees, you should be engaging your broker right now. Um, and to some degree, uh, it gives you a lot more time. Three to six uh, months out is probably normal. Uh, at least get things moving. 
yeah, in some cases that you're, you're probably doing your open enrollment in October and November versus December. Uh, so you have to start looking at it. Um, again, it's a little bit early. Maybe you don't want to do it and you dread it. But I tell you, if you start waiting until the last second, you have less pool, less negotiation. Some insurance companies out there that are able to probably insure you for less close their doors off for January 1st at some point um, during that fourth quarter just because they, they need to manage the workload as well. So you may not get an opportunity for everything you need or want or desire to move in a better position without that time frame. So I would definitely not um, be doing it less than 90 days out. Um, definitely if you're if you are one of those companies and partly because you don't do anything until the broker responds, uh, you need to call your broker or or consider a second opinion because uh, it'll it, it's a disaster and that's why you stress out every year you dread this whole renewal process and I think that creates a problem and you need to work on it um, as well and the last thing when you go through this open enrollment by given time you could focus a little bit more on compliance there's fines and penalties rolling out to employers in so many different ways. Uh, especially from a Department of Labor standpoint, HR is definitely has to be on top of a lot of this. Uh, but when it's connected to benefits, uh, there's a few items and I'm just going to throw these out there on the podcast um, because these are easy items to try to take care of before the renewal as we move into. Um, and th these three items were actually driven off of a few Department of Labor audits my clients got because of disgruntled employees that file complaints. They asked for three things when they're in the audit. One was an employee handbook um, that was updated with the employee benefit offerings in there. Most small employers that are under 300 lives probably didn't update theirs in the last several years, if not longer or if ever. So um, it's a good path to start to better things inside the workplace. But update that employee handbook um, because they, they're going to probably ask for it if you get a Department of Labor audit. There's disclosures for open enrollment and new hires. And so you need to have those available. And then that was um, requested during this audit. Um, and that has a number of disclosures in there, including their continuation rights if they were get terminated uh, for one reason or the other. Last thing they asked for was an ERISA wrap document. This is a ERISA, which is an Employee Securities Act that was passed back in like the 70s. And it's just basically a, a document with legal words that are updated on a regular basis about the employee benefits program. And this has to be um, done as well. All these have fines attached to it. So you have a financial incentive to do it. If you have questions on this, give us a call. Um, and depending on the needs, we might be able to handle a lot of these things in house. Um, and if it ends up being a little more complicated, we have the resources. We don't have to go to Google and figure out what you're going to do next. So call our office or um, uh, contact us and we'll help out with you.